Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Presence. 
That's right. His name is powerful indeed. In this message series, we're talking a lot about anxiety and just feeling overwhelmed and surrounded at times. But the good news is, is we serve a God who fights our battles. And so we have a chance here and now to praise him through it. There's a table that you prepared for me in the presence of my enemy. It's your body and blood you shed for me, because this is how I fight my battles. That's right. There's a table you prepared for me in the presence of my enemy. It's your today. Let's sing this out. So my web 
You know how it is, I'm always asking you for a few extra minutes, right? Today, however, I'm going to give you some back because this is a, a simple, single thought. And because of that, I don't want to talk past the point of our receiving it today. So we're in a series called Song for the Anxious Mind. Our theme is from Psalm 139. Everything is built on that song. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you have them, electronic devices, if you have a Bible app. And if you don't even have a Bible app, don't worry about it. All you need to do is Google Psalm 139. And you'll be able to read it with us. But it's really important to me, for your sake, that you read this and own it personally. Because this is not the kind of sermon you can hear and walk out and say, well, I left feeling inspired or, or Mark had an off day, whichever one I, might be the case. This is one where you need to walk out of here and say, I feel like I've been given some tools to deal with my anxiety. And for me, uh, this all began... Uh, Earlier this year, when Mary Alice was just reading to me early in the morning, we were reading through the Psalms, and she read Psalm 139, and I thought, I don't ever want to forget this psalm. Not that I didn't know about it before, but I want this to be my go-to song when I deal with anxiety, as I do so often. So today, we're going to pick it up in verse 7. We covered verses 1 through 6 last week. I'm not going to go over those again, because they're on the internet, they're on the app. You can watch that message if you want to. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read verses 7 through 12, and see what God has for us today. So let's read this. David asks, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. These scriptures have long been favorites of Christ followers and those who are part of the Jewish life and Jewish tradition. So whether you're in a church or a synagogue, you're likely to celebrate this song. It is a beautiful song because David is saying, no matter where I go in extremes, God, you are there. He says, if I... Take the wings of the dawn. That's a poetic way of saying, if I go as far east as I can go. Think about where Israel is situated on the map. The sun would rise in the east. So David is saying, if I go as far east as I possibly can, God, you are there. Then he said, if I go to the far side of the sea. Well, where is the sea? Where's the Mediterranean position from Israel? It's to the west. So David is saying, if I go as far west as I can go, which interestingly enough would have been America, Uh, David didn't know that at the time, but basically David is saying, if I go to America, God is there, which is good for us to hear. And then he said, if I go as high as heaven, you're there. And if I go as low as some translations will say hell, others will say the grave. We'll just use the term Hades because that's the most accurate. David said, if I go as low as Hades, you are there. Now, again, that's beautiful, and that's where we usually focus in this psalm. We focus on no matter where I go, God is there. 
But that's not our focus today. Our series is about anxiety. And today we want to recognize the fact that David has asked two questions before that answer comes. And we're going to focus on the two questions that he asked. And they are troubling. I, I, I've read, I remember reading the psalm when I was a little kid and thinking, these are unusual questions to ask. Just in case we might have missed them, the first question David asks is, where can I go? Now, the Hebrew word there means walk away. Now, think about that for a moment. David is saying, where do I walk away? Do you ever feel like that? Have you ever wondered, where is the door to just walk away from all this craziness? And that's what David is asking. He is saying, where can I walk away? Where do I sign up to walk away from the stuff that I'm dealing with? But that's not where he stops. It's the second question that maybe even is quite more troubling. Because the next question is, where can I go to escape? If we were to take the English word that is the most literal translation from the Hebrew word there, it would be the word bolt. Basically, he's saying, where can I bolt? Now, that's not an English word that we use a whole lot as a verb. In fact, about the only time we in the United States who speak English use the term bolt as a verb is when we describe somebody getting up and running suddenly out of the room. We, we will say, he bolted from the room. That's a usage that we are familiar with. Now, here in Kansas, we're more familiar with the other usage of that verb when we say, the deer bolted in front of my car, right? But anytime we use that word bolt, it's, it's different from the word sprint because sprint carries with it the idea of intentionality. If we say she sprinted, there is that context of understanding it was intentional. If we say someone raced, again, that's a synonym, but its context is very different. About the only time we use the term bolt is if there is rapid, sudden, haphazard. In fact, oftentimes the word danger comes to mind when we hear that someone or something bolts it is not an intelligent move. It is a reaction. So I say all those things so that we will understand David's questions, and they are troubling. I mean, I've, I've been curious ever since I was a little kid. Why did David ask, where do I go to walk away, and where do I go to bolt or run away from the stuff that I'm dealing with? One more thought about just words so that we, I don't want to get us into the study of Hebrew or Greek words just for that sake. I just want us to so understand the scriptures that we're dealing with here. The NIV, and I think the King James Version, uses the verb flee. That's interesting because flee is a form of the word flight. Now, there is a psychological response that humans have, and even in the animal kingdom, when there is an imminent threat. We call it the fight or flight mechanism, and we all have that. It's a reaction to trouble. We, if we feel strong enough to fight or we feel like we have a good chance of beating the opposition, we may fight. But if we feel that we can't win, then flight comes in. So when you take all that into your thinking, you understand the question David is, is dealing with. He's like, where can I go to walk away from what I'm dealing with? Oh, by the way, I don't think I can beat this. Where do I go to run away? How can I bolt? How can I flee from all of this stuff that's in my life? I don't want to take too long talking about this, but I find David one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. For one thing, I think David dealt with anxiety 
probably more than any other major character in Scripture. And the more I study, the more convinced that I am. The reason why I'm going to a place that probably doesn't add to the sermon is I can't help but wonder how many of us are in a similar circumstance that I think contributed largely to David's anxiety. Think about the two main chapters of David's life and consider them in contradistinction. In the early part of David's life, he was a shepherd. He was by himself. He was alone. He had a lot of time for solitude. It was a time for him to practice his harp and his slingshot and talk to God. There was quietness. There was stillness in David's life. All of that changed in a matter of hours when his dad sent him to take a bag of cheese to his brother's who were in the military, and this nine-foot-tall giant showed up, and David said, I will go fight the giant. From, it was just a matter of days until he was commander of the entire military. Think about that for a moment. He went from being a quiet shepherd to being commander of the military, and that never stopped until he became king. He was king for 40 years. So do you feel that? I mean, I can't help but wonder how many successful people are here in South Auditorium, North Auditorium, watching online, watching on television. I can't imagine how many of you were in that same scenario. You had a quiet life, but because of your gift package, you were summoned to center stage, and now you live in high intensity. And part of your anxiety is you thinking to yourself, how could I ever get back to the solitude that I used to enjoy? And that's an American thing. It's a Western thing. And I don't know, for those of you watching around the world, maybe it's true in your part of the country as well. David wants to know, how can I get away? And just in case you think that I might be playing fast and loose with these questions, look at what he says in verse 11. He speaks these words, surely the darkness will hide me. That's a very dark statement. David is like, Maybe if I could just get away from everything, I could disappear. In your anxieties, do you ever wish that you could just disappear? I've been there. I've been there many times. I know how, I, I feel what David is saying. David's like, where do I go to walk away? Where do I go to run away? If I could run away far enough, maybe I could just disappear. So these questions are important to me. Now, the verses that you and I are going to cover today are just the ones that we've read, and we're only going to deal with these questions. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, because what we need to recognize is just this big thought that running away is not the answer. You know, bolting is not going to cure what's hurting us. Disappearing is impossible, and it's not a good thing, because every one of us, as we're going to see next week, has been gifted with ways to impact everyone around us, and in the whole world for that matter. So the last thing we need to do is walk away, run away, or just disappear into the background. Let's get some help here. Let's begin with an exercise. Look at David's question, or look at his statement, and I, I want you to hear with your minds and your spirits but I want you to hear this with your emotions, okay? This is one time I really do want you to apply your emotions to what David is saying to see if you can feel what I feel here. David said, if I go east, you're there. If I go west, you're there. If I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. I mean, wherever I go, wherever I run, wherever I walk, wherever I bolt, if I go up, if I go down, if I go east, if I go west, what, what do your emotions hear there? If you don't deal with anxiety, you, this may not relate. 
But if you deal with anxiety heavily as I do, I think you may feel something. But before I say what it is, have you ever been in the process of painting a room and you're not sure exactly what shade, maybe not even sure what color to paint it? And you go down to the paint store, and I don't know if they still have these or not, but back in the day when I was shopping, they used to have a paint chip card. And that paint chip card would have various shades of the same color. It would begin with the lightest and go to the darkest, but it was the same color, just different shades. Well, when I hear David saying, if I go east, if I go west, if I go up, if I go down, there's a sort of emotional paint chip that I feel here. The lightest shade of it is restlessness. The medium shade of it would be frantic. And the darkest shade of it is panic. That's what I hear. If David, if I go this direction, if I go that direction, if I go up, if I go down, there is a restlessness there that becomes frantic in nature and ultimately becomes panic. When a person is where David is, you will often hear them say this. And for those of you who love people who who deal with anxiety, listen for this expression. I just need to do something. That is bolting. I don't know what to do. I just feel like I need to do something. Well, think about your experience in the human realm, and when you've heard that expression, think about how many people made extraordinarily unwise choices at that moment where they just say, I'm frantic, but I need to do something. I do know what that's like. I definitely know what restlessness is. I I have lived my whole life with restlessness. So when we have that moment where we are restless or maybe frantic or even panic, I want us to recognize that the answer is not in walking away or running away or disappearing. (laughs) As much as I hate to say it, the answer is in a word that all of us type A people, personality people, we actually dislike this word. But it's still the answer. The answer is a little five-letter word. S-T-I-L-L. We need to be still. See how backward it is to our reactions? Our reactions, I need to do something, when in reality, the answer is we need to be still. Well, that's always been a challenge for me. I'm an old guy. You have to probably be 50 or older to remember when teachers used to fill out report cards by hand. And in those days, the report card would be a little folder. And on the left side, as you opened it up, it would be the grades. On the right side, it would be grades for citizenship. But on the back of that folder, the teacher was able to write comments to the parents to help the parents know what it was like to have their kid in class. And I cannot tell you how many report cards, in fact, it was predictable whenever I got a report card in elementary school, especially in the earlier grades, it was going to be something like this. Mark is an exceptional student with a great attitude. He's very respectful, but Mark can't be still. And it's true to this day. If you talk to any member of my senior team, they all have rocking chairs in their office because they know if I don't have a chair where I can move, I won't sit in there and talk with them. So they actually, isn't that pathetic? They actually have rocking chairs. I mean, you go into Billy Poor's office, Dan Kubish's office, you're going to see a rocking chair. I can't be still. 
But the kind of still that we're talking about here isn't just physically being still, although that's important. It's emotionally still. And just in case we have Bible students here who feel like I've been a little bit too fast and loose with the psalm that we read today, I want you to hear three scripture verses that all have the statement that we should be still or stand still. I want you to know these verses and I want you to see them in their contexts. The first verse is in Exodus chapter 14. Let me give you the scenario before we read the verse. The Israelites are leaving Egypt and they're beginning their trek to the promised land. God has sent the 10 plagues. The 10th plague has happened, the death of the firstborn. And the Egyptians have said to the Israelites, go, get out of here. We're we're not trying to hold you here anymore. Take your stuff, take our stuff, take our plasma televisions, you know, take our cars. Just go, get out of here, please, before your God sends another plague. So they're all excited and they're heading east and they get to the Red Sea, which is at flood stage. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to navigate the Red Sea when all of a sudden Pharaoh's army begins to chase them. Pharaoh realizes that he has let go of his slave labor force, which is the engine of his economy. And so he's decided he's going to chase the Israelites. So now the Israelites, two and a half to three million of them, are facing the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army is behind them. That would be a legitimate place to freak out. But it is at that point where God has Moses say to the Israelites, don't be afraid, just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you this day. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Be still. Now, the second verse that I want to share with you is one that you probably know if you like to study the Bible, if you've been in church, or if you've been in synagogue. For a long period of time, some of you will have it in jewelry. Some of you will have it in plaques on your wall. You know this statement most likely. But let me give you the backstory. It is Psalm chapter 46, verse 10. But although this is in the Psalms, it's not written by David, nor is it in the Davidic time frame. Psalm 46 was written several hundred years after David in the reign of King Jehoshaphat of Judah, who was a good king, by the way. Jehoshaphat wakes up one morning and he gets the news that he is being attacked, not by one army, not by two armies, but by three armies at the same time. And oh yeah, by the way, they're already in the subdivision. He's told they're they're already here. Jehoshaphat looks at his situation, his brass, his team, his military leaders, his advisors. They look at this and think, maybe we could beat one army, but we can't beat two, and we sure can't beat three. And so they're trying to understand what they could possibly do, and no option looks good. And so they do the most important thing. They pray and ask God for wisdom and ask God for help. Now think about this. You have a king, you have a nation being attacked by three armies at the same time. What do you do? The word comes back to King Jehoshaphat from God. And as I said, these are words that you will recognize. Be still and know that I am God. Now, for all of us who deal with anxiety, all of us type A personalities, especially who like to scan our options at that moment, It's really important that God did not say to them, be still and know that I will beat your enemy. Not be still and know that you're going to be okay. Listen to the language that God said. Be still and know that I am God. 
How many of our anxieties would be better informed, at least, if we just stopped for a moment and were still not running away, not walking away, not trying to disappear? How many of our anxieties would melt a lot if we could just be still and remember that God is God and we're not? Well, the third verse that I want to share with you is where we're going to spend the rest of the message because I really think this is much more like our everyday anxieties. I mean, you may have a situation once or twice in your life where you're facing a Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind you. You may face a couple of situations in time that's going to feel like you have three armies attacking you at the same time. But I really think that most of our anxieties are day-to-day thing, and they're more like our third story. This is a story of a couple of women, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. There's a love story going on with the daughter-in-law, and it looks like it could go south. So that's, that's the kind of story that we deal with, right? And some of you may be right there right now. You're, you're in a relationship, and you're thinking that it's, it's on the brink. So with that in mind, I want us to go to this third story. The mother-in-law is a woman named Naomi, and the daughter-in-law is a woman named Ruth, whose name the book is named after. So look at Ruth chapter 3, verse 18. Naomi speaking to Ruth. She said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. Can we just read that one more time? Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Well, with the time I have left in this message, I think instead of preaching an outline, I think I would serve you better if I just told the story. This whole story happens in a period of time in Israel called the time of the judges. You can read about it in the book called Judges, but I will tell you before you get into the book, it is the darkest, ugliest, most awful book in the Bible. There are stories in the book of Judges that I will not preach on because they are just too horrific. It is a time of about 400 years, roughly from about, well, let's just say 1300 B.C. to 1000 B.C., maybe 1400 to 1000 B.C., and there is no king in Israel, and stuff goes from bad to worse. I've been asked so many times since I started preaching at the age of 16, Mark, do you see America in the Bible? They're always talking about prophecy, but I always think, sure, I see America in the Bible. It's in the book of Judges. It is interesting when you read the book of Judges because when you get to the last chapter and the last verse and the last statement in the book of Judges, it is as if God writes the epitaph for the nation of Israel with one sentence. Now, see if this sounds like America. God, in his way of explaining why things were so dark during this period, he said people did whatever they felt like doing. And I think about America when I see that. Well, really bad things were happening during this time. But there was a couple, there were were a man and a woman with two kids who were living in this time frame. And because they were dealing with the judgment of God, God oftentimes withheld rain so that the people would turn to him. And it was in one of those seasons where there was a famine. And Elimelech came into Naomi, his wife, one day, and his two boys, Malon and Kilian, and he said, we can't make it here. We can't make a living in Israel anymore. We're going to move to Moab. That was a horrific decision because the Moabites were extraordinarily wicked. They did not worship Jehovah God. More than that, they worshiped 
pagan false gods to the extreme. Let me just tell you this. They burn their children alive. Many of them burn their, their children alive to their God. It was a horrific, ugly, painful place. It was a terrible decision on Elimelech's part to move to Moab. But they do. And while they're in Moab, the two boys, Malan and Kilian, marry Moabite wives, which that was strictly forbidden in Israel, but they did it anyway. One of the daughters-in-law was Orpah, not Oprah, very close though, if you transpose the R and the P, but Orpah was one of the daughters-in-law and the other daughter-in-law was Ruth. And then bad things really began to happen. Elimelech got sick and he died. One by one, the two sons died. And now it's a house full of three widows. It's just Naomi, her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. The word Naomi means pleasant. She was known for her beauty. She was known for her charm when she left Israel. But now as she looks in the mirror, her face is wrinkled and careworn and streaks of gray are in her straight hair. And she says to herself, I don't want to die here. I don't want to die in Moab. I don't have any money. I don't have any land. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know what I'm going to eat. But I'm going to go back to Israel and just die there. So she says to her two daughters-in-law, you gals need to go back home. And she says something that I just have such a hard time wrapping my mind around. But when you're that depressed, oftentimes, well, people say things that are out of character. Because Naomi not only said to them, go back to your homes and families, she said, go back to your gods. And at first, both daughters-in-law said, no, we will stay with you. But finally, Orpah said, well, I guess I'll go back. But Ruth was very different. And she said something that, interestingly enough, for many years here in the United States, at least, her words were part of weddings. It was something that a man would say to a woman or a woman would say to a man. But in reality, it was a daughter-in-law talking to her mother-in-law. That is weird. But in the old King James language, we, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. Whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people will be my people, and thy God will be my God. So they head back to Israel. And they get back to Bethlehem. And when they walk into Bethlehem, everybody is looking and saying, is that Naomi? My goodness, she looks awful. And what's this deal with this Moabite girl that she's with? And they, again, they have no place to live, hardly anything to eat, just hand to mouth. But it happens to be, as the book of Ruth tells us, during the barley harvest. And Ruth is very, she's very ingenious. And she has discovered that in this culture that she doesn't completely understand, there is a rule about poor people being able to pick up the leftover grain from the fields and it belongs to them, basically. The Jews were told if they dropped grain, leave it there for the poor and they were not to harvest the corners of their fields. So Ruth learns about this rule and she tells her mother, I'm gonna go do that. Mother-in-law, I'm gonna do that. And Naomi says, it's a good thing. What Ruth did not know was that she was... She has chosen the field of a man named Boaz, and what she also does not know is that Boaz is very closely related to the family of her husband and her father-in-law, and he's a very fine person. And so Ruth goes out into the field of Boaz to glean, and as she gleans, she begins to pick things up, 
And she picks up grain. And in the process of time, Boaz comes by and he says hello to her. Oh, we kind of feel something there, right? And Boaz says to Ruth, hey, when it comes time for lunch, you come up and eat with my team. And not only does that happen, she gets to take the leftovers home. And Boaz says to his reapers, hey, you see that girl back there? You drop some on purpose for her. And when she goes back home, she's got a truckload of grain. Now I need to pull over to the side of the road and stop for a moment. Because Ruth is one of the most symbolic books in the Bible. There is intense symbolism in the book of Ruth. Boaz is a prototype of Jesus. Ruth is a type of us, especially Gentile believers. And the marriage that they'll ultimately have is seen as a picture of the church. So this is a really important piece of symbolism for us, and especially to remember that Boaz represents Jesus. So when Ruth gets home and tells Naomi, yeah, I was in the field of this guy named Boaz, and he was real nice to me, and he spoke kindly to me, and he gave me all this to bring home. Naomi says a couple of things to Ruth that are really important for us. She says to Naomi, Naomi says to Ruth, this guy Boaz is qualified. Now, Ruth may not understand what that means at first, but there was a law in Israel called the law of the kinsman redeemer. And what it meant was if a man died leaving a widow, and if there was a near male kinsman who was not married, if it was acceptable to both parties, that they could get married, and that man would be considered the redeemer. He would be called the kinsman redeemer because he would absorb all debts that this widow might still have. And they would get married and the family would go on. And so Naomi says to Ruth, this guy Boaz is qualified. So at that moment, she becomes coach Naomi and she starts coaching Ruth up on what she needs to do to make the deal go down. She said, when the time comes for the harvest, the the landowners are going to have this massive party. And it's kind of symbolic, but there's this big party that takes place. And all of the grain that will be harvested will be in the middle. It's like a big mountain of grain. And the guys, after they party, they're going to go to sleep. And the way they would go to sleep is they would sleep with their heads in toward the grain and their feet out. So if you looked at it from the sky, it would look like a wheel with spokes. And Naomi said, here's what you got to do, Ruth, if you want this thing to happen. You just go in there after the guys are asleep. And you quietly lie down at Boaz's feet. There's no symbolism. I mean, there's nothing immoral there. It's just symbolism. And she said, you uncover his feet. And when he says what's going on, basically she said, you're you're to tell her, tell him rather, I want to be redeemed and I want you to redeem me. And it happens just like that. I don't know, as you think back on your love story or love stories, Was there ever a moment where you thought everything was going to work out and then all of a sudden there was a hitch? Well, there's a hitch here because Ruth does exactly what Naomi says. She goes in there, uncovers Boaz's feet. Boaz said, I know what you're asking for. You want me to redeem you. I will redeem you and you want to be redeemed. This thing is great. It's going to happen except there is a kinsman who is more closely related to you than I am and he's got first choice in this matter. And if he wants to redeem you, there's nothing that I can possibly do. And that's where we have our verse. 
Because Ruth comes home and tells Naomi there's a hitch. There's a closer kinsman. And that's when Naomi says, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. Well, we're talking about anxiety, but just so that you won't be anxious about this, do you want me to tell you how it worked out? (laughs) The next day, Boaz goes into town. They didn't have like city hall. They met at the town gates. And he meets this closer kinsman and he says to him, hey, you know our family lost a man and then his two sons died. We're related. There's a piece of land that needs to be redeemed. After all, who couldn't use more land? Do you want to redeem the land? And the nearer kinsman said, yeah, I'll redeem it. Oh, my heart sinks when I hear that. But then Boaz said, but there's one more catch. You have to marry Ruth. And the guy says something really interesting. And again, I've shared with you, there is symbolism here, and this is not what my sermon is about, but those who study this say that the nearer kinsman represents the law. Because in effect, we are closely, more closely related to the law because of our sin than we are related to grace. But notice what the nearer kinsman said. In verse 6, he said, I cannot redeem. Just FYI, that's the problem with the law. It can't redeem you. How many times have I asked someone, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And they will say, yeah, I know for sure I'm going. And I'll ask why. And they'll say, because I'm a good person. What they don't understand is they're talking about rules. They're talking about law. Do we understand what the Bible is teaching here? The the nearer kinsman said, I cannot redeem because I might endanger my own estate. It is so powerful to think about that in context with Romans chapter 8, where the Bible says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh. What rules could not do, Jesus came and did for us. That's not my sermon, but that would be worth speaking on, wouldn't it? (laughs) And so, Boaz redeemed Ruth. They got married, had a big wedding. And here's the rest of the story. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, I'm reading from the message, Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. Boaz slept with her. By God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. Naomi took the baby. This is the ultimate grandmother verse in the Bible. Naomi took the baby, held him in her arms, cuddling him, cooing over him, waiting on him hand and foot. The neighborhood women started calling him Naomi's baby boy, but his real name was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And when you read the lineage of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, there is a Moabite woman who is a great-great-grandmother of Jesus. To close out this message, let's go back to that pivotal moment where Ruth comes home and tells Naomi this thing may not work because there's someone who's closely, more closely connected to us. That's when Naomi said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. I think I may know what some of you who struggle with anxiety to the extreme might be feeling right now. You wouldn't articulate this, I don't think, unless you're just uber candid. But for those of us who deal with that kind of anxiety, there is this idea that we would say, I can't be still. 
The idea of me in the throes of anxiety, finding a quiet place and being quiet and still is not available to me. If you feel that today, I want to give you two reasons from our story why every one of us can be still when anxiety strikes. And they're in the story of Ruth. And here is the first one. Ruth has done everything she knows to do. She's made the right choice. She's stayed with that choice. She's honored that choice. She's worked hard. She's taken the choices that were available to her. Even when it comes down to presenting herself to Boaz and asking him to redeem her. She has done everything in her power. Read the text. She put on a nice dress, even put on perfume. At this moment, she has done everything she can do. Well, if we feel anxiety and we haven't done everything that we can do, then it's silly to feel anxiety over something we have the power to change. I mean, after all, Work is a therapeutic thing. So if there's something you can do to actually help the situation, well, that's important. But that's not where most of our anxiety comes from, does it? Most of our anxiety comes from having done everything we know to do, but our engine is still redlining at that point. What, what, do, we, what do we call it at night when we can't sleep? What do we say we do? We, we toss and turn. Go back to the paint chip. There's the restlessness. In other words, we don't know what to do, but we just stay in motion because it's like, I got to do something. It, it, it comes to me that Ruth has done everything she can do. And when you've done everything you can do, the time is to sit still. But just in case someone is saying, I don't believe I can do that, if you are a Christ follower, you need to hear the second part of that verse that Naomi spoke to Ruth. She said, the man, now who does Boaz represent? He represents Jesus. The man will not rest until the matter is settled. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In effect, God is saying, you can be still because he won't be. You can rest because he won't rest. Listen to what Naomi said to Ruth. Ruth, sit still until you know how the matter will come out. She didn't say, Ruth, sit still because everything's gonna be fine. She said, you don't know. Sit still until you know how the matter will resolve because the man will not rest until he resolves it. I hate to be so transparent with you, but it is worthwhile that I be. I really think much of my anxiety comes from deep down within me this thought that I feel the pressure to be God or to do what God does. I really believe one of the most important things about being still is for us to remember that we're not God. We haven't been hired to be God. Even though others may hold us accountable to do what only God can do, we need to walk away from that sense of pseudo-accountability. The fact of the matter is, we're not God. We're human. 
We have our flaws. We have our limits. We have our capabilities. And when we've done everything that we can do, it's the time to sit still and to let God be God because only God can do what only God can do. And we need to rest in that reality that we are his daughters and sons and that he will not rest until he does what only he can do. You have homework today. I want you to look into the busy life that we lead. Do you realize only 12% of Americans ever have a time in which they completely unhook from electronic devices? I want to encourage you, find a quiet place and just spend some time with you and God in Psalm 139. And think about those lines and meditate on them. And see if in that quietness, healing doesn't tiptoe into our lives. Would you bow your head with me, please? Father, help us, I pray. And in this next moment, I pray that anyone who is yet to make Jesus Christ Savior and Lord, that decision will happen in Jesus' name. Would you stay with your heads bowed? I keep going back to that line where the law says, I cannot redeem. Rules can never redeem you. You need a redeemer. And if you're here today and you're not sure that you're going to heaven, you need to do what Ruth did. Or even if you're watching online, same thing. You just need to let Jesus know, I need to be redeemed, and I want you to be my redeemer. That's why the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to pray a prayer right now that does call on the Lord. And I'm going to pray it slowly, and I'm going to pray it line by line. And if you decide you want to say these things to God, I mean, you can use your own words. Or if you decide you want to say these things, God will hear your prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, I know I am a sinner. I am flawed and broken. I can't fix myself but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I want to be redeemed. I want Jesus to be my redeemer. Help me to live my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, Just go to any info center. They're all over the campus and say, I pray with Mark. There's a gift box for you, a Bible like I preach from, a book I wrote, some other helpful things. Thanks for being here. We'll pick up this anxiety study next weekend. God bless. See you then. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.